You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, how you guys doing? This is super loud. This, this will not do. Yeah, I know what this sermon's about. We're going to get loud. <laughs> All right. So how you doing, Revolution Church? We'll take it. Right on. I'm glad you guys are all here. Uh, like Holly said, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Huge shout out to my dad, Mark Stiltner. He's better than your dad. I don't know if he could whoop your dad. Um, <laughs> but he's got guns. Yeah, he's a member of the NRA, so look out. Um, anyway, whatever. Uh, so this evening we are pushing through uh, with our study of the letter of First John. And we talked about it a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago when I preached. Uh, our goal is to see what doctrinal faithfulness... Um, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Our goal is to see what John is pushing for us to understand uh, when... Bleh, can't speak English. Uh, with regards to doctrinal faithfulness and also how that should impact every single area of our lives. Uh, so just a little... Warning to you, I, I was talking to my wife about this whenever I was writing this sermon. This is a really heavy-handed sermon, right? So, like, just buckle up, right? Like, put a helmet on. This one's really heavy-handed. Uh, it's probably going to be really, really, really bitter uh, for the most part. But I can, I can promise you, uh, in seeing these bitter truths, that only makes the gospel sweeter whenever we finally get to, to rediscover the gospel almost. Right, so tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at the biblical concept of sin and trying to go fairly deep with it. I'm not going to try to go super deep because I don't like to preach outside of my depth. Right, just how many ways can you say the word deep in one sentence? Um, right, but I know most of us grew up in church, right? And we've heard about sin a lot. And we've heard, like, it's like we've heard that word a million times. We've heard just all, all over the place. Uh, but in spite of that, in spite of hearing about sin often and hearing many sermons preached about sin, uh, we tend to not think about sin too much if we're going to be honest with ourselves. We especially don't tend to spend very much time reflecting on our own sins. right? So even whenever we do think about sin, we think about it as this big concept and not really about my particular sins that need particularly repented of. Right? But even at that, we don't, t- we don't think about sin very often. We hear... We hear people say all the time, and we say all the time, um, yeah, I'm a sinner. Everybody is a sinner because nobody's perfect, man, right? We hear that kind of maxim all the time, and that is incredibly true, and there's nothing wrong with that statement, but do you really dwell on the weight of that statement? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I sin. Everyone does. Do we really dwell on what we're actually saying there? I think most of us have become hardened to the idea of sin. And really, that evidences itself in the way that we talk about it. And that's a huge problem for us. And we need to somberly and soberly consider sin and its effects and its relationship to God and its relationship to everyone that has ever been born. All right? Because until, and the reason why that is, because until we are absolutely broken by our sin, we are never going to run to Jesus Christ for salvation. Until you're broken of your sin, until you look in the mirror and see yourself as a wretch, until you can see your particular sins, you're never going to run to Jesus for forgiveness. And and if Christians, those of us who have been born again, who trust Christ, who follow Him, if we lose sight of the severity of sin, 
we're never going to grow in holiness. And we're going to become complacent in our pursuit of God. And we will not have the communion with Him that Christ died to purchase us. Right? And that's a heinous thought that we wouldn't have all that God has in store for us. That all God purchased for us in Christ. So my goal this evening is not to teach you guys anything new. Uh, on the contrary, that, that, is like, that is never my goal. I never want to teach you guys anything new because like we talked about two weeks ago, if it's new, it's heresy. Um, but like many of the sermons of this series that we're, you're going to find out pretty quickly, much of this stuff that we're going to look at is stuff that you've already heard, and that is okay. The Bible repeats itself a lot because we're stupid and don't listen the first time. Um, but hear me on this, please. Please hear me. Let these truths penetrate you. Let these simple truths that you've heard a million times bear down on you. Let your sin break you. Right? Now, I can't preach on every specific sin in one sermon. Right? But you know your sins. Consider them. And if you don't think you have any sins, you're going to see that's a huge problem in the text that we're going to be looking at. But too often, we, we don't look our own wickedness in the face and we refuse to truly look upon our sin. And because of that, we, both believer and unbeliever, tend to pass through life unrepentant and with hard hearts, attempting to justify every act of disobedience, every bad attitude, and every hateful word, and blame it on someone else or some circumstance that happened to us instead of owning our sin as something we did. And that is absolutely inconsistent with being a Christian. We cannot be unrepentant and claim to know God. As you guys heard from Kevin last week, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So we cannot live unrepentantly. So please, be honest with yourself this evening and let the Word of God cut you down so that the Gospel can then stitch you back up. So please, consider your own sin. Consider where you're rebelling against God and then run to Christ. and Let Christ heal you. So with that being said, let's read 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, and we'll pray. We'll get into this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, show us our sin. Show us our sin and show us Christ. Grant us repentance that the believers present might follow you. And if there are any false converts here, God, that they would hear the gospel and repent and believe truly for the first time. Cut us down so you might heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you guys will remember, uh, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, that one of the reasons that John is writing this letter is to confront heresies being taught in the church in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. Um, Holly's been to Turkey, I think. I'm sorry, I just looked back at Holly and I saw that. Yeah, so she's been there where these heresies were going down, and thank God she was not affected. Um, That joke sucked, but come on, like, help me out, please, please. Anyway, whatever. Um, 
Yeah, thank you, Holly. Um, okay, so again, so there are some heresies going down in what is now Turkey, and he's writing to address some of these things. Um, so something that I don't know if Kevin addressed this or not last week. Uh, if you read in First John uh, the phrase, if we say, Anytime you see if we say, John is most likely referring to something that the heretics were teaching, so his counterphrase is going to be something to contradict what they were teaching and put the people on the right track. Right? So verses 8 and 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Right? So if we say we have no sin, if we say we have not sinned. Right? So verses 8 and 10 tell us that these heresies that he's going to address are incorrect views about sin and its nature and its relationship to humanity, right? So before we go any further, let's consider what sin is, right? Now, I was thinking about this, and like our culture doesn't really think about sin biblically, right? Like, granted, we have like concepts of right and wrong. We have concepts of good and evil uh, for certain, Uh, but these concepts that we have culturally, I'm talking about secular culture, Um, are really driven by society or they're driven by legality, right? Like it's not actually wrong to abort your children because it's legal, right? That tends to be like the general consensus that like, so whatever the law says is okay, that's what's good. And whatever the law says is bad, that's what's bad. Um, So culturally, sin is thought of as, quote, doing something bad, end quote. Uh, Like you're breaking a rule or breaking a law or violating some cultural taboo. Because we have like three left in the United States. (laughs) We have like a few taboos left, not many. Um, Or sin is talked about poetically, right? Like who in here listens to Fall Out Boy? Hate on me if you want. I'm the only one. Wow. Okay, two people. Remember America's Sweetheart? He says, I'm in love with my own sin, right? So like people use it. You guys have heard like country songs. People talk about like my love for this woman might be my damnation. That's a Chris Stapleton quote because he is the man. Um, Yeah, sorry. Uh, White trash flows. Can't help it. Um, But yeah, so like we we read about or hear about sin talked about in a a poetic fashion in music a lot uh, where sin is essentially something that's really not good for me or something that hurts me a little bit, but I just, I love it so much and I'm not going to stop doing it. Uh, But sin really isn't talked about in reference to God. Right? And what's interesting is sin can't actually be divorced from God because it's directly related to his law. Right? So hear me on this. The law is the word of God. So God's law is uh, derived from his holy nature. Right? You follow me on that? His word is, is an extension of who he is. So you can't rightly separate his person from his word, which means you can't separate sin from his word. And we'll see why. So we're going to define sin. You're going to see sin cannot be talked about apart from talking about God. The Baptist Catechism, question number 17, says this. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Which is, so it's, it's, a, it's uh, I'm blanking, I'm sorry. So a transgression is whenever you clearly break the law, Right? Uh, like we see where the standard is and we just violate it outright positively in action or a lack of conformity to the law is I see what the law tells me to positively do and I'm not going to do that, right? It's what we talk about whenever we talk about sins of commission versus sins of omission, right? So you either positively break the law or you neglect the law and negatively break it. So it's, again, a want of conformity to the law or a transgression of the law. And some scripture that we see for that uh, is 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Funny enough, it's in our letter. 
John says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And we also see this in reference to sin. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Right? So two ways that the Bible talks about sin is being lawless, which is essentially living as if there is no law. Right? And anyone who sins commits lawlessness, right? rejects God's law, lives as if he didn't give one. And sin is also talked about biblically in, in the sense of rebellion against God, which is how you tend to hear me talk about it the most. Right? Where we revolt against God and we oppose him entirely. Right? And again, these can be sins of commission or omission. And further, and, and again, I think sometimes we forget to, to, to consider this, Sin is not just what you do with your hands or what you do with your body. Right? Sin is any action, any thought, any word, any attitude. Right? That's a big one that we don't hear talked about too much. It's any attitude. It's any desire that contradicts the law of God in any way. Right? We see Jesus saying as much in the Sermon on the Mount whenever he says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you haven't done anything physically with this woman, but you've committed adultery with her. Right? So this is every single way. If you can break the law in any potential way, that is sin, whether it's in your mind or in your actions. Well, let's go a bit deeper than just breaking the law. right? Because we, we tend to think about that occasionally whenever we think about sin. But what, what is at the heart of sin? Right? What makes sin so sinful? <laughs> Right? I think Wayne Grudem gives us some really good insight. Yeah, this comes from his systematic theology. He says this, Sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. It is, in essence, the contradiction of the excellence of His moral character. It contradicts His holiness, and He must hate it. Right? So, to sin then, and I think Grudem hit the nail on the head, Right, so to sin then is to directly oppose all that is good. To contradict God's holiness and to reject his character altogether. I don't want you. I don't want your holiness. I, I find it disgusting. I would rather embrace this other thing. Right, so sin isn't just breaking some arbitrary rules given by a tyrannical God. Right? God is not arbitrary. It's not just the breaking of some arbitrary rules. Sin is the rejection of the loving, kind, life-giving lover of men who has given us everything that we have, including the energy that we use to sin against Him. Sin is absolutely refusing to love God and instead choosing to love something else. It's rejecting His moral character entirely. But let's, let's push a little bit further. Sin, what makes sin so awful? Just experientially for us. Right, so again, we've looked at the vertical, but what, what about the horizontal? What makes it so bad for us? Sin destroys literally everything it comes in contact with. Everything. The world. There's death in the world because of sin. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. There's death in the world because of sin. Anything that sin comes in contact with, it ruins. It corrupts us to our core. The human race is no longer something that God looks at and says it is good. Once sin touched Adam, the whole human race became sinners, not good people who occasionally do bad things. It corrupts thoroughly. Sin 
because it's corrupted us thoroughly, then ruins our relationships with one another. It brings unhappiness with it. Sin is the root problem of everything. It is the source of all poverty. It is the source of all greed. It is the source of all adultery. It is the source of all anger, all hostility, all anxiety. It's this root source of all things that are wrong with the world. Sin is the worst thing that we can think of. But I think that the worst part of sin, at least experientially for us, the worst part about sin is that it promises what it can't deliver. Sin promises you satisfaction. Right? Sin tells you, hold this grudge against this person and be angry with them and you will feel better and you will feel vindicated and you will be satisfied. Sin tells you to hoard your money and refuse to help and refuse to be generous and think solely about yourself and what you want to do with this cash and then you will be secure. Sin tells you to watch the pornography, to sleep with the person that you, you're attracted, with, attracted to, and you will feel intimacy finally. Sin tells you to do your own will and fulfill your own desires, and everything is going to be all right, and you'll get what you wanted in the end. Psalm 1611 says this, though, to God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So just hear me on this line of of thinking. God is the supreme giver of satisfaction. Sin says it will satisfy, but what it does in reality is alienate us from the true source of all life, pleasure, and satisfaction. That's, for us, got to be the worst thing about sin. It promises one thing and literally does the opposite thing. It alienates us from the one who can actually satisfy, and it ultimately leads us to hell, eternally conscious torment in the flame of God's unmitigated wrath, the supreme, unpleasurable thing. Right, and I just want to take this moment to say this. Sometimes we get our theology jacked, and people say, God punishes sin in hell. Right? Just because I'm talking about hell, this is a freebie for you. God doesn't punish sin in hell. Sin is the breaking of God's law. He punishes sinners in hell. Right, so let's just get that thing clear. God doesn't punish an abstract, ab, an abstract concept like sin. God punishes concrete sinners. But furthermore, and this one, this was funny whenever I was studying just the doctrines of sin this week. Sin is irrational. <laughs> like this, this one made me laugh. Right, sin is irrational. What do we think can truly be gained by sinning? Just transgressing God's law or just refusing to obey Him in any way, shape, or form. What do we actually think is going to be gained by that? I was reading Psalm chapter 2 this week and it says, Why do the nations rage and say, let's shake off the shackles that God has put on us? Right? And then the next verse says, He who sits in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. It's like the world sins against God and thinks, we're going to throw you off of us. We don't want anything to do with you. And God sits in heaven and laughs at them and mocks them and holds them in derision. Like, you serious? I'm God. Like, what are you going to do? Why would you rebel against me? Like, it's completely irrational because we will all answer to God for our sins in the end. It makes no sense to sin. I went through all that stuff because I want to say, God, save us from taking our sin lightly. I just wanted us to get, to get a picture of sin, right? That, that, that phrase that we tend to say, yeah, I sin, everyone does. Consider, in light of the Word of God, what you have just admitted to doing. 
Yeah, I rebel against the God who made me and gave me the breath to blaspheme his name, the supreme source of all joy. I have rejected him and hoard myself out to something else and embraced it instead. That's what we're actually saying. God help us from taking our sin too lightly. It is deadly serious. The penalty for these crimes is hell. So may we speak soberly about it. But again, please try to get your own sin in mind for the rest of this sermon. But verses, in verses 8 and 10 of our text, right? let's get back into the text now that we've just talked about sin for a while. John tells us that sin is a fact that has spread to every single human being. He says if we say we have no sin or we have not sinned, right, verses 8 and 10, that we lie, we make God a liar, and his truth is not in us, right? So no one is exempt from sin. It has spread to all, right? And what's funny, whenever we think about what John is having to teach, apparently there were people in the churches in Turkey who were denying that they currently had any sin to confess to God or that they had even sinned, ever, right? That's madness. Like there are people saying, oh, I don't sin anymore. Or like, which again, we see some of that today in like some of the Wesleyan traditions. Like, yeah, I'm fully sanctified. I don't sin anymore. It's like, seriously, so you like perfectly obey the law of God all the time? I make some mistakes sometimes. It's like, we call that a redefinition of terms, sir. You sin. Um, Anyway, sorry. But yeah, apparently there were people saying that they don't sin or that they had never sinned and they had nothing to confess to God, which is just madness because that runs completely contrary to the testimony of Scripture. And that's why John condemns it in such strong, absolute statements, right? So let's just run through this. For starters, the Bible affirms to us that we all have inherited, all of us without exception, we have all inherited a sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? They're literally our first parents. The biblical worldview does not hold up unless Adam and Eve were real people, right? Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? So Adam, our representative, rebelled and became a sinner. And now that sinful disposition that Adam has because, had because of his sin has been passed on and imputed to us, right? And again, something just I think is very interesting to consider. This is what, whenever I mean like sin corrupts us thoroughly, I mean this, Adam was no longer good. God looked at all his creation after he was done and said, it is very good, and he rested. We see that in Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3. Adam was no longer good, though, whenever he sinned. He He was not a good man who had committed a sin. When Adam sinned, he became thoroughly corrupted. He became a sinner in his nature. It was something that, that, that took hold of him, that he became a slave to. All right, so whenever we talk about the sin nature that Adam then received and that we have all inherited, what we mean is this. Our inherent disposition and desire to break God's law and reject Him. Right? Our inherent desire that we're born with to reject God and break His law. All right, so this is the root of our sin. And again, we live in a culture that rejects this and tries to blame everyone's sin on socioeconomic problems or their upbringing, and that's why they act the way that they act. No, that's not what the Scriptures tell us at all. Scripture says it's in our nature to sin, and that's why we rebel, because our desires themselves are evil. I believe it's Genesis chapter 6 says, The heart of man was wicked, is wicked, continuously. Always. So just, again, 
So I think it's funny how our experience tends to echo what the scriptures teach, right? So the Bible says that we all have a sinful nature. We are all uh, bent away from the law of God, bent away from the love of God, um, and inherently want to do evil. And then our experience echoes the truth of the scripture, right? Our, our, our experience doesn't affirm the truth of scripture, right? Because scripture affirms itself, but it echoes it. Just think about this for a second. If you don't think you have a sinful nature, where do your unprovoked thoughts that tend towards evil come from? Right? Like, you're sitting at home, nothing's going on, no one else is home, and you just want to watch porn really badly. Where does that come from? Like, you weren't watching TV, like nothing triggered you or whatever, like you just, that's what I want. Or like, for me, and mom, please don't fire me for this, I'm back in the office counting a bunch of money at my mom's store, and I think, I could take like all of this and no one would think it was me. And I really want this money. I'm not going to steal it. I've never stolen from you. Um, I'm not going to steal it. But I'm serious. Like there, there have been a couple of times I want to. Why? I, I make enough money. I don't need any more. Why would I want to steal? Right? Why whenever you're sitting at home and, and, and for no reason at all you want to watch pornography? Why is it that whenever someone cuts you off in traffic, you want them to die sometimes? Like I've heard some people like say as much. It's madness. Where do these unprovoked evil tendencies come from? Right? So why, even when you don't do the sin, why do you still desire to do the sin? It's in us. It's in our nature. This is what we're bent towards. And God places the blame on us. He does not place the blame on culture. God does not place the blame on our economic status or our social status. He places the blame on us because it's a part of who we are to reject Him until He intervenes with sovereign grace. But more than just a propensity towards sin, right, and this is interesting, more than just a propensity towards sin, we all have actually sinned. Right, so some people say, it's not really fair that you're born with a sin nature. Well, buddy, you've actually sinned too. So like, regardless of the nature, you actually have done some wrong things. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, so we have all failed to meet God's standard of full obedience to His law. That is the glory of God. Right, we've all fallen short. God says, hit this, and we have not. In fact, we have refused. It's not that we're trying really hard to hit that standard. It's we have rejected Him entirely. Right, by nature. So again, quickly, I'm not even going to spend much time on this because I don't think we have this problem here. But just look at the Ten Commandments. And this is actually a really good exercise for Christians who are like, yeah, man, I I think I'm nailing it pretty well right now and I don't have much sin in my life. Look back at the Ten Commandments. Nobody has or is currently perfectly, ten for ten, in thought, word, deed, desire, and attitude. No one is perfectly worshiping God. No one is perfectly honoring their parents. No one here never blasphemes in thought, word, or deed. No one here doesn't sinfully hate anybody ever or has never coveted or never lusted in their hearts. Again, whether it's in your hearts or by your hands, every single person in this room has broken all of the Ten Commandments. We have all actually sinned. And furthermore, Jesus ups the ante a little bit. He says that the great commandment is to love God with all that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of that, all of us have hoard ourselves out to something other than God and have treated our neighbors with contempt at one point or another. We've all actually sinned. Furthermore, 
Even those of us who have come to God by faith in Jesus Christ and have been born again and are saved and have been justified, you still sin. This is super important. Please, you still sin. Verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, the Apostle John includes himself in that we. So John's saying, even if I... John, the elder, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who walked with Christ for three years and saw him crucified and raised from the dead. All these things. If I say that I have not sinned, I am a liar. He includes himself, so we ought to include ourselves. So though it is not acceptable, Christians still most definitely sin against God daily. Right? The apostle Paul describes the Christian life with this in Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. So this is a Christian. The desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members or in my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is showing us that though we have been given a new nature in Christ and we are new and we have been justified and we are saved, that the sinful nature still remains and wages war against the believer. And in this passage in Romans 7, Paul admits to failing to fight back against the sinful nature. So hear me on this. Again, there's a freebie for you, and this this was huge for me to consider this week. When you sin, Christians, I'm talking to Christians, when you sin, you were not overpowered by your sinful nature. That is blasphemy. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. To say that you were overpowered by your sinful nature and, and you, were, you were forced or coerced to sin is blasphemous because the Spirit is stronger than your sinful nature. The Spirit is stronger than Satan. You are not overpowered when you sin. When we sin, we give in willingly. You weren't pulled off the ledge, you jumped off the ledge. Sin is still our choice, it's our fault. So a lot of us need to get off our high horse and remember this, that nobody is nailing obedience 10 for 10. All of us are guilty every single day of sinning in some way or another, right? It's a little insight into my personal life. I remember growing up, and there was a man in our church who held a a decently high position in the church I grew up in, and I asked him, I was like, man, like, I know that I sin. I know that I sin every day. Whether I think something wrong, or I say something wrong, or I do something wrong, I know that I sin. What is wrong with me? And this guy looked me in the face and said, I don't believe that a Christian sins every day. I think that a Christian sins occasionally, but I do not believe that a Christian sins every single day. If that is your mentality, that a Christian does not sin on a, reg- does not sin on a regular basis, you'll become a Pharisee. Right? You either are a self-righteous person if you think that you don't sin every day, or you are failing to see the depth of the law. And you're failing to be honest with yourself. 
failing to be honest with yourself actually goes on with what John's saying. John says that we have to own this truth. This truth that we're sinners and that we fail to meet the standard that God sets before us every single day. It is not optional. We must own this. Because if we don't, we're calling God a liar. This is what he tells us in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And His Word is not in us. His Word declares our guilt. And our experience echoes what the Word teaches us. So to deny our sin in any way, shape, or form is blasphemy against God. And God will hold us accountable for it. And furthermore, if we don't admit our sin, verse 10 tells us, then His Word is not in us. And I believe John is referencing the Word of the Gospel here. The gospel can have, you can have no part in the gospel if you don't admit your own sinfulness. Because a prereq to becoming a Christian is to admitting that you're a sinner. And that you deserve condemnation from God. And until we are convinced of our sin, we will never come to God for forgiveness. And because of that, we will remain under His righteous wrath. But what I thought was really interesting in studying this is that John says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin to confess, if we don't see on a daily basis our own wretchedness and our own sinfulness, if we don't see that in ourselves, we are lying to ourselves. He says, you deceive yourself. What he's getting at is that if we don't see our sinfulness, we're lying to ourselves because we don't want to see the truth. That's what it means to deceive yourself. You, just, you, you know what the truth is. You just don't want to see it. You don't want to see yourself as you truly are, right? Like, it's, it's like, okay, for me, I have, I have gained a lot of weight since I've gotten married, right? It's, I'm bearing my soul here, guys. Um, right? I've gained like 35 pounds or 40 pounds since I've gotten married because my wife's a good cook. Um, so I have been tempted to like, all right, let's take these mirrors down and let's hide this scale and take it out of the kitchen, which I placed it there for a reason. It doesn't work. Um, and buy some bigger clothing. And why would I want to just buy bigger clothing? Which, by the way, eventually you'll get too big for that clothing too. Um, why would I want to buy bigger clothes, hide the scale, and take the mirrors down in my house? Because I don't want to see what I am. Because I don't want to see the fact that I've gained 40 pounds. We deceive ourselves whenever we don't whenever we're not honest with our own sinfulness because we don't want to admit what we actually are. Right? And we're willing, what's insane is we're willing to call God a liar in the process because we so much don't want to admit what a wretch that we are. But yet here stands Scripture as this great, gracious scale and mirror that shows us the truth. It shows us what we actually are. It shows us our ugliness and keeps us away from self-righteousness. It shows us what's wrong with us. It shows us our sickness and our sin. But thank God, it also shows us the remedy for sin. It shows us how God puts back together ruined sinners from Adam's race and puts them into the kingdom of His Son. So again, it's a mirror, but it also prescribes medicine to us. Verse 9. It's one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Verse 9, here we see the grace of God towards those who have rejected Him and rebelled against Him. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's just break that down for a second. This is the remedy for us. If we confess. John's saying, if you own your sin to God and stop trying to justify it or to blame shift it onto someone else or some circumstance or some financial stress or whatever's going on in your life, if you stop, just stop trying to blame shift and justify your actions. When we confess, truly confess to God, we go to God saying, I am dead to rights. You caught me in the act. I deserve your fatherly displeasure. I deserve your wrath. I deserve to go to hell. I did it. And I'm done trying to justify it. I did what I did. And I am a sinner. I am what I am. And I need mercy. It's, by the way, it's not just the raw admitting of your sin. It's coming to God for mercy through Christ. That's what he's talking about when he says confess. And we have a great promise to us in Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Truly confess, we will obtain mercy. He says, if we confess, these are my, the next two things are my favorite things. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins. Right? He is faithful God is faithful to His covenant promises. There is no lie in God. God has never broken His word. And in the new covenant, He has given us a rock-solid, sure promise that all who come to Jesus Christ, He will not cast out. All who come to Christ for mercy will obtain mercy. That is His new covenant promise. And He is faithful to the promise to save us through Christ. In light of that, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So even when we're faithless and we have sinned against God, he is faithful to forgive us our sins when we confess to him and go to him for mercy. So hear me on this. We can rely and appeal. We can rely on and appeal to God's promises. God will save us for his own sake, not for our sake. But God will save us because he is faithful to his word. And like he says all throughout the Old Testament, why should my name be profaned on account of you? Because of your sin. I won't let myself be profaned. I promise to save you and I'm going to do it. He is faithful to his word. In Ezekiel, just real quick, he says, I love this phrase in Ezekiel. Yahweh has spoken. I will do it. He's saying, I said it, I'll do it. And I said that I'll save you through Christ and I'll do it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He is just to forgive our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Right? It's that word you hear me use all the time. He's the propitiation for our sin. Christ paid the penalty for it. It is over. God would then be unjust to make us pay for our sin too. And God by no means will violate His own just, holy character. If Christ paid for it, He will not require us to pay for our sins because He is just to forgive us because Christ has paid it. And He says He will forgive us our sins. To forgive our sins means that God will not hold our sins against us anymore. I know some people say, uh, God forgets your sins. He casts them into the sea of forgetfulness. I, that's a little bit too literal of a poetic, too literal of a reading of a poetic passage. God doesn't forget our sins. Right, he just chooses not to count them anymore, which I think is way cooler. 
For the record, if God forgets something, he's no longer omniscient because I know something he doesn't, which is just false. But God doesn't forget our sins. He chooses to not count them anymore. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 tell us a beautiful thing about what God's done with our sins. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God has nailed our sin to the cross with Christ, and now he chooses to cancel the record of debt that once stood against us. That's what it means to forgive. It's no longer yours. Christ has paid it. And he says he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that all unrighteousness carries a double meaning with it. Right? So first, all of our sin. All of our sin. Your past sin, your present sin, and all the sins you will ever commit in the future, all of your unrighteousness. If you come to Christ, all of it is taken away from you. You are cleansed from all of it. And not only that, but all manner of unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Regardless of what sins you've committed. All of them. Past, present, and future. All manner of unrighteousness. So anyone for any sin can receive forgiveness by God in Christ. And that is good gospel because He is faithful and just to forgive us. Before we go into application, I want to address something just real quick, kind of quick. Why does the Christian, right? Why does the Christian, the justified person, the one who has been born again and saved by God, why do we need to continue confessing sin and repenting, right? Because I'm sure some of you might be asking that question because you look around and I'm pretty sure the vast majority, if not all of us in here are Christians because this is like the core rev. This is where our members are is during the summer. Why am I preaching this to you guys in this manner that you need to come to Christ, repent, uh, confess your sins to Him, and receive forgiveness? If you've already been justified, if you've already been declared righteous by God in Christ, why do you need to do this? Right? Is it because you lose your salvation every time you sin? And now you need to get born again, again? Come on, that's funny, guys. Born again, again? That's one of my favorites. Uh, No. No. That is anti-gospel to think that you lose your salvation every time you sin. That is anti-gospel. That is anti-Christ because you're putting salvation on yourself and not Christ. Justification is an, instant, is an instantaneous declaration from God that is unbreakable and irrevocable because God is faithful and He has declared you justified and you're going to stay that way. Christ has been your propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. But I think we need to understand that there is a justifying confession and also a sanctifying confessions. Like plural, sanctifying confessions. By justifying confession or justifying repentance, we mean the initial faith and repentance of a sinner whenever they first trust Christ to save us. Whenever we talk about sanctifying confessions and repentance, just think about it this way. Even for Christians, sin places a barrier between us and God. It does not revoke your salvation, but make no mistake about it, it places a barrier between us and God. It alienates us from Him. And the reason that is, is because God's feeling, this is profound for me, and I'm stealing this from John MacArthur, right? God's feeling towards sin is always the same, regardless of who commits it. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's always the same. And sin always brings with it misery 
alienation, and estrangement from God. Always. Whether you're a Christian or not, it always brings those things. So when we own our sin as a Christian and seek reconciliation with God through Christ, He removes that barrier. He removes that sin so that our communion with Him might be right and not be hindered anymore. Right, so just think about this. Sometimes we, we forget this. God didn't just save us so that we wouldn't go to hell. He saved us so that we would know Him intimately. Right? He wants us to know Him experientially. Right? To, to walk with Him as children would with their Father. That's what He created us for. And this is what He saved us to. And when we confess, He removes the barrier that we, by our own unrighteousness, have placed between us and God. And not only for deeper communion with Him, but our daily confession and repentance promotes growth and holiness. Now just think about it this way. As we reflect on our rebellion and then receive grace from God, as we confess our sins, we are then pushed deeper and deeper into gratitude for what Christ has done. And then by God's grace, we'll also be driven to a greater resolve to put sin to death because of the gratitude that we have for God. Right, so the daily confession of the Christian reminds us that there is not a single day, a single moment, that we do not need the blood of Jesus Christ to sustain us. And God wants us to be aware of our dependence upon the righteousness of Christ and not our own. But in light of all the things that we've considered, I think there are three simple not always easy, but three simple things for us to do with this. The first is this. Stop lying to yourself. Please hear me on this. Please. Stop trying to justify your sin. Stop glossing over your sin. Stop blame shifting it. Stop blaming your rebellion against God and your rejection of His holiness on something else. You did it. You sinned. You lusted. You watched the porn. You got drunk. You hate the person. You're holding the grudge. You're the one that's not trusting the Lord. You're the one being greedy. Stop blaming it on something else and own it. The guilt is yours. God lays it on you. Own it before God. Let the weight of it break you and feel the sting of your sin and confess it to God and truly repent. Truly repent. This is the second one. Truly repent. This isn't just saying a prayer. God will not be mocked. He will not be deceived. You don't just shoot up some Hail Mary style prayer and think that everything's cool with you and the Lord. That's not how it works. True repentance also is not just fearing punishment or fatherly displeasure from God. We call that attrition. Right? Attrition is whenever you catch a kid with their hand in the cookie jar and they go, oh, please don't whip me. I'm sorry for getting the cookie. That's not repentance. Repentance is contrition. Not attrition. Contrition. Where we hate the sin itself where we hate the offense itself, where we hate what we have done and mourn what we have done, not just the penalty for what we've done, but the act itself, and we hate ourselves for having done so. That's real repentance. That's real contrition. 
And God promises not to reject us if that's our heart's posture. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, it's contrition, contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He will not cast us away if we come to Him with such a broken heart. So confess and repent. And then please hear me on this. Because this is beautiful. This is good gospel here. Rest on the promise. Rest on the promise of God. That He promised salvation. That He promised forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. Rest on the justice of God. That Jesus Christ has paid for all of your sin. And God will not ever make you pay for it yourself. Rest on the faithfulness of God to forgive you. And the reason why I end with this is because you will not always feel forgiven. You will not. God may allow you to to mourn for a long time over your sin and continue to feel the effects of your sin and the sting of your sin for a very long time. He's done it with me. Sometimes I still feel the, the sting of sins that I committed a long time ago. You will not always feel clean immediately after you confess and repent. But hear me on this. We live as forgiven people because God has declared our forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Regardless of how we feel, we rest on the promise of God. We rest on the justice of God. We rest on the faithfulness of God. So once you've confessed and repented, I want you to push on and get up and keep following Jesus regardless of how you feel because He still loves you. And He forgives you. And He has purchased you for Himself. So I'll leave you with this. Our sin is great. It is huge. It is much. But God is greater still. And you cannot out the grace of God given us in the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful Father. You're faithful and just to forgive us even when we don't deserve it. Christ, thank you for suffering in our place and accomplishing our salvation. Holy Spirit, please convict us. Jesus Christ said that you come to convict the world of righteousness. To show us what righteousness is, which means to show us what our unrighteousness is. Please be faithful to that. Show us our sins so that we might repent. And please grant us repentance. And don't make us like Esau, who sought for repentance, but you never gave it to him. God, please Don't leave us in our sin, but break us and let us renew our faith in Christ. Thank you for your mercy. Please be kind to us. We know you will in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.